0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today on this week's live question and answer program. It's a Thursday afternoon here in Southern California, and we're just very pleased to get together. I do have to say that uh, I am very much happy to be back after having two Thursdays when I was gone. Over those two Thursdays, my wife and I, Ingalil, we traveled to see our daughter, Ansefi, who right now lives in England. And uh, even though it was a little bit strange to be out of the U.S. during Thanksgiving... I have to say at the same time, it was a wonderful, wonderful time with our daughter, in England. It's great to be back, though, and it's great to be back here on a Thursday afternoon when we can get together. I come on my YouTube channel, I open it up to everybody, I take whatever questions or comments come in, and not for a moment do I think that I have the answer to every question, but certainly I just try to do the best I can and tell you what I might be able to share with you, and if I don't know, I don't mind telling you. I just don't. It's our pattern on these Thursday afternoons to begin with a lead question that I've chosen. This question comes in from a beloved viewer of the program. And the question is simply this. uh, When were Jesus's disciples born again? When exactly did that happen? Were they born again when they first started to follow Jesus? Were they born again sometime during his earthly ministry? Were they born again after his uh, resurrection? Were they born again on the day of Pentecost? When, if there's a marking point, when would we say that the disciples of Jesus... Now, we have specifically in mind the 12 disciples, even though we know that there was a larger company of disciples that followed Jesus uh, more than just the 12 matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, when they gathered together in the upper room after the uh, resurrection of Jesus, after his ascension to heaven, there was 120 of them. And so there there was a larger group of disciples. But let's just think about it in terms for this question. The 12 disciples that followed Jesus, uh, when were they born again? Well, um, I believe that it happened at a very specific marking point in the Scriptures. And I want to direct your attention to Here's what we read here John chapter 20 beginning at verse 1. It says this. When he had said this, uh, the he here is speaking of Jesus. So when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, "Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you." And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are." Friends, I just need to tell you that I think that there's a lot of importance to those words of Jesus found in verse 22 of John chapter 20, where Jesus simply says, or it says in the text. He breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." I believe that that is a clear scriptural marking point of when the disciples who were present with him there in that room which by the way, I'm, I'm thinking through it now, that there were the eleven disciples. Judas is out of the picture at this point, of course, in John chapter two. Uh, there were the eleven disciples of Jesus but we also know from uh comparing some of the other gospels specifically the gospel of luke that it was more than just the 11 in that room i can't tell you how many more but it was more than just the 11 to those present there in that room jesus it says that he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit now let's put this in context of course this happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would say that that means it was after the new covenant was put into effect. If you'll remember, just a few days before this, in the upper room at what we commonly call the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that the new covenant would be put into effect by his blood. He, in a sense, said that the new covenant would be instituted at his death. And you could combine these gospel events of his death and resurrection. But but that event, his death and resurrection, that would put into effect the new covenant. Now, in light of that, we think it's very significant that Jesus breathed on his disciples And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's why I think this is significant. is because that breathing on the disciples and his declaration, receive the Holy Spirit. This was a deliberate connection with the creation of Adam. You could say that this was a re-creation. When Jesus breathed on them, the description of it there in John chapter 20, verse 22, uses the same vocabulary as in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when it says that the Lord breathed the breath of life into Adam, making Adam a living being. Now, don't, don't forget here, in the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, Jesus spoke of being born again. He, he made it synonymous with being born of the Spirit. Physical life for the human race began when God breathed into Adam and he received the breath of life. Again, that's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Spiritual life begins for us when we are born again, born from above. And God breathes his Holy Spirit into us. This is what happened for the disciples in John chapter 20, verse 22. So on the one level, we have a connection with creation, and this is a re-creation. Secondly, we have a connection with the covenant promise, the new covenant promises, I should say specifically, of Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Again, what do I mean by this? Well, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, his prophecy, it uses the same idea of breathing, the same vocabulary. In Ezekiel chapter 37, when at the valley of dry bones, breath came in to the restored bodies. It's a striking illustration here in Hebrew, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. Where God takes the prophet out to a valley and he sees uh, an assembly of just scattered dry bones all over the valley floor. And at the command of God in the preaching of the prophet, the bones assemble together into skeletons. Then they develop muscles and ligaments and flesh upon them. But even when they're all assembled, and that they're not alive yet until God breathes in them. Same idea here. The impartation of the Spirit by the breath of God. Now, the other thing you have to realize is that the giving of the Holy Spirit is a specific aspect of the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 says this. God promises as part of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You see, this was a exciting demonstration that the new covenant was instituted and they could receive this being born again, this impartation of the spirit, because very specifically, God says as part of the New Covenant promises, I will put my spirit within you. And this is part of the New Covenant. So it's a demonstration of recreation. It's a demonstration of the New Covenant. It's also a demonstration that they received the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus. Notice, it says that Jesus breathed on them. He gave the disciples the same Spirit that was in him, and he breathed on them. Now, there's something that uh, some of you may know, maybe some of you haven't heard this yet, that in both biblical languages, Hebrew and Koine Greek, biblical Hebrew and Koine Greek, in both of those languages they use the same word for spirit, breath, and wind. And you can kind of see why those concepts are related. Breathing on them and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit was a very tangible way of saying that the disciples had received the Holy Spirit. They were part of the new covenant. They had entered into those new covenant promises. And a matter of fact, They didn't receive a different spirit than that which filled Jesus. They received the same Holy Spirit because it was Jesus who breathed on them and they received it. So um, let me just conclude this idea with a few important points, or at least they're important to me. First of all, regeneration and the impartation of the Holy Spirit are aspects of the new. Covenant. To be born again is to be a part of the new covenant that was instituted. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, but it was instituted by the blood, by the death, by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, I believe that an understanding of the covenants in God's plan is very important. I'm I'm going to get a little theological with you just for a moment. I don't really understand what is called the covenant theology of our Reformed brethren. You see, in what they call covenant theology, there is an emphasis on two covenants. But the two covenants of covenant theology are not specifically named or described in the Bible. They're not. Covenant theology is centered around what they call a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. You will not find any covenant in the Bible that uses those that phraseology. There's nothing in the Bible described as a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. But you do find in the Bible a, a Bramac covenant, a covenant that God made with Abraham and his covenant descendants. You find the Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant. You find the Davidic Covenant. And most importantly, you have the New Covenant. Now, I'm leaving out of this the covenant God made with Noah and other things. These are the four, I think, essential covenants to understand and to properly order in God's plan. So I want you to know, I very much am, in what I regard myself as, as a covenant theologian. I believe in the covenants. But I believe as they are biblically stated and understood. I'll just give a little request. If there is somebody in our viewing audience or listening audience, you can uh, send to me a link for what you regard as the best description or statement of covenant theology as it's understood by our Reformed brethren. I'd be anxious to look at it or read it because there are things about their formulation of this that I just don't get, and maybe it's because I'm really looking for biblical terminology and um, explanation of these. All right, whatever. We also see from this that there are a variety of experiences with the Holy Spirit. I think that's a very important lesson to draw from. The disciples clearly received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, verse 22. I'll just tell it to you, when Jesus breathes on you and says, Receives the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit. There's really no doubt about it. It's not like Jesus could proclaim over you, Receive the Holy Spirit, and you don't receive it. So they clearly received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20, verse 22. And again, to answer our original question, that's when the disciples were born again. But of course, there was a clear subsequent reception of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then after that, there were specific subsequent outpourings of the Holy Spirit after. This is what I'm trying to say. Biblically speaking, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is not a one-and-done event. There are people Uh, who believe that when you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit, which absolutely you do. You cannot be born again without receiving. But they act as if that's just a one-and-done experience. No, the experience of the disciples in the book of Acts shows us that there are subsequent and meaningful receptions of the Holy Spirit, even after a person is born. Well, Hope that question was helpful for you, and uh, I'm glad we could spend some time taking a look at it. Let me take a look now over here at our uh, live chat, and uh, I'll just see what we can get here from some of the questions. First of all, from Jose, he asks, uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, does it mean that because we have faith in Christ, we can now obey the law? Does it mean that we don't have to obey it? What exactly does this verse mean? Please explain. Well, let me turn over here to Romans chapter 3, verse 31, where we read, uh, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Here. Paul, in the larger context, is trying to show that the righteousness of God is not received or achieved by God's people by their keeping of the law. The righteousness of God is received or achieved by the people of God by their um, relationship of faith and trust and love in Jesus Christ. It's received by faith. So what he's just trying to point out here in this passage is that uh, even though the law is not the way by which we uh, achieve righteousness before God, the law is not made void. The law continues to have an important purpose in God's plan. It is just not the way that a person is made right with God. Instead, um, faith in Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus, is how we are made right with God. And instead, this righteousness received by faith is an establishment of the law. It, number one, it fulfills the purpose of the law. But then, secondly, under grace, under what God gives us, to use the terminology we were speaking of before, uh, under the new covenant, we fulfill the law. Better than under the So, Hosea, that's the best answer I could give to you here, specifically about what verse 31 means. Paul is saying that just because the law is not the way that we are made righteous before God, it doesn't mean that God is finished with the law or that the law has no purpose. And it also means that by faith and what God does in us by that faith relationship in Him. Uh, The law is actually fulfilled. It's established. It is better, better. So I hope that helps you. Uh, Rain says, "What does Acts chapter one verse six mean? Is the kingdom of heaven only for Israel? Why didn't Jesus correct them?" Okay. Well, let me turn over to Acts chapter one verse six here, where we simply read it was a question or response to a question from his disciples. Uh, Let me read here. Starting here, uh, he says in verse six. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" What what the disciples were essentially asking was, "Lord, is the end going to come now?" You see, there are so many Old Testament promises that speak of the kingdom of God in some aspect being given or restored to Israel, not only that they would be independent again as their own nation, but that they would have this leading role in the world. This is prophesied under many prophecies in the Old Testament. And again, not only with that, but then also in connection with the new covenant, which is an interesting thing altogether. But they were asking basically, Lord, is now the end of the age? Is now it going to all happen? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I want you to notice how Jesus responded. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has welcomed you. So, Rain, I think this is interesting. No, the kingdom is not only meant for Israel, but the Bible clearly tells us that in the kingdom God will establish, Israel will have a leading role. They will be, if you want to call, the superpower of the world. Isn't that strange? Little Israel will be the superpower of the world in the messianic kingdom. Now, you also ask here, why didn't Jesus correct them? Because Their basic understanding of the Messianic kingdom was not uh, a mistake. What they misunderstood was the timing of it. And so Jesus didn't even bother to correct their timing. He didn't say, no, no, guys, that's not going to happen for another 2,000 years. Jesus didn't say, no, you've got it all wrong. Um, I'm done with Israel. Now it's the church. Jesus did not say that either. What Jesus said is, Guys, the next step is for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to fulfill the purpose and the function that I have. So I find it instructive as to what Jesus said to the disciples in response to this question. But I also find it instructive what he did not say. And he did not say that they were completely wrong in their understanding of the kingdom. What he said is, no, not now. You Get prepared and equipped for the job I have to do to receive them. So that's um that's the way I would understand. It. Tiller asks the question, do you have any teaching series on Exodus 20 directly or the Ten Commandments? And where can I find it? Well, Tiller, that's a great question. And um we need to do this on our YouTube channel. I need to think about this. Because what we have is a series where I sat down with two pastors of the church that I was the pastor at at that time. And we walked through the law of Moses as revealed in Exodus chapter 20 and following. Um, But if you go to my website, enduringword.com, and it may also be here on the YouTube channel, but I do have some teachings on the Ten Commandments, and specifically, I'll try to put in the links the connection to those um, conversations where we walk through the Mosaic Law, basically Exodus chapter 21 to what is it, 23 or twenty. So that's a great thing. Uh, We'll take a look at that. Uh, Of course, you do have my written commentary that you can find at EnduringWord.com where we walk through that, uh, I think in some detail. So uh, we will try to link whatever audio teaching we have or video teaching to uh, the comment section of this uh, video. But as well, you can find the written commentary. Uh, I have a written commentary on every chapter of the Bible. 66 books, however many thousand-plus chapters in the Bible, verse-by-verse verse commentary. You can look at it there. You can find it at EnduringWord. Joanne asked the question, Great to be here from Nebraska and enjoyed last night. Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, continued prayer for these ministries. Joanne, thank you so much. I appreciate that greatly. Um, yeah, we had a nice service last night. Last night at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara for the Wednesday night midweek service. I spoke about the testimony of Isaiah to the coming of Jesus, speaking from Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sure you can find the video at um, the Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, California website. Uh, going on, T asked the question, Can you explain Obadiah one eighteen? Uh, when did this happen in history, or has it not happened yet? Well, let me look up here, Obadiah. Of course, these uh, short books of the Bible, in the end, can be difficult to find sometimes. Obadiah here, chapter 1, verse 18, says... Well, let me read at verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. That's a verse speaking about the restoration of Israel. I would say ultimately fulfilled in this uh, messianic kingdom, the, uh, the millennial kingdom. Verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. This again speaks of judgment that was going to come upon the nation of Edom, uh, the descendants of Esau. And I, I think that what we have here in verses 17 and 18, and in much of the prophets, we have prophecies that have both near and far fulfillments. There was a judgment that came upon the house of Esau, upon the Edomites. Uh, They were um, finished as a people in the first century. I think most specifically, if I can remember correctly, that it was actually from the Roman armies that came. uh, Again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I might be incorrect. But I think it was the Roman armies as they came through that part of the world that really delivered this devastating judgment to the Edomites and the land of Edom. And they did. So I would say that in that aspect, this judgment on Edom, on this descendants of Esau happened. Uh, But this great deliverance that's mentioned in verse 17, the perfection of that, the ultimate restoration of Israel is yet to happen. Now, we see what we would call limited restorations of Israel. There, of course, was a limited restoration of Israel following the Babylonian exile when they came back into the land. You could say that in the 20th century, there was a limited restoration of Israel. And these things are wonderful. They're glorious. But they don't fulfill all the promises that God made regarding the restoration. So, T. Stu, that's how I would read that. I would regard the judgment on Edom as being uh, really fulfilled, fulfilled in what came upon them. Again, I'm doing this from memory, so I might be incorrect, but came upon them from uh, the Romans as they marched through. Jane asked the question, Hi, David. I'm fascinated by Melchizedek. Do you think there were others like him not in the Bible? My research says it probably was not Jesus. Well, um, I would say this, as far as there being others like Melchizedek, I I think in one sense it would be true, in another sense it would not be true. Here's the sense it would be true. You have, in the Old Testament, people who were not of the lineage of Abraham. They did not come from Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, from that covenant lineage. You have people who were not of that lineage, yet were true and genuine worshippers of the God of Israel, of Yahweh, the, the God who's really there, the creator God. For example, you have Melchizedek in the days of Abraham. You have Jethro in the days of Moses. And you have... I'm trying to think of the other example that came to my mind. Well, in any regard, you have other people in the Old Testament as well. Oh, I was going to say Job. You have Job as well, who again had a real relationship with Yahweh. But to the best of our knowledge, Job was not of the lineage of Abraham. So God had his true and faithful followers even outside the genetic lineage of Abraham. And, and that is a phenomenon that was probably not reserved just for uh, those people that I mentioned, Job, Melchizedek, Jethro, the father-in-law, of Moses. There were probably many others like that. As far as being people just like Melchizedek, in this sense, there was nobody just like Melchizedek. There was nobody who was the king of Salem, nobody who was the priest of the Most High God, Nobody who received tithes from God's people, even Abraham. Uh, nobody who could pronounce a blessing upon. Him. So, in that sense, Melchizedek was unique, but as being somebody who had a real relationship with God, even though he was not properly under at least the genetic aspect of the covenant of Abraham, uh, yes, there were other things. So, I hope that. Is helpful, Jane. Um, he asks again, "Who is the nation of Edom today?" Because it's prophesied in Isaiah sixty-three one through four and Isaiah thirty-four five through eight that Jesus will come back to a kingdom ruled by Edom. So they still have to be on the earth today. Well, uh, I don't know. I would have to take a look at those passages. And T, I guess what I'll do is make note of that, and uh, maybe we'll talk about that next week in our Q&A next week, because that's the kind of thing that I'd want to give you a very reasoned answer to, and uh, see that for today. So that's of interest to me. Thank you for bringing that question, and let me make a note of that, and we'll get to that on our next week's thing. I can give you Ginny uh, says, Will Jesus forgive our sins after we have been born again? Ginny, let me give you a categorical answer to that. Yes. 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 A thousand times yes. Ginny, if the only sins we could be forgiven of are the sins that we commit before we're born again, then every one of us is going to hell because nobody lives a sinlessly perfect life after they're born again. The gospel, uh, the wonderful message of good news in Jesus Christ, it's not just for those who have first come to Jesus Christ, who are coming to Jesus, but it's for everybody who needs Jesus and everybody who is already. Believer. So we are very grateful that uh, the promise of forgiveness is for believers as well. Remember first John chapter one verse nine. By the way, first John is a letter that was written to believers, people within the family of God. He says this If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful, powerful promise that is. And it's a promise not only made to the person who has yet to believe, but it's also a promise made to those who are. Next question, Uh, Gracia says, have you heard of or read Disciplines of a Godly Man? Your thought, if so. Um, I'm trying to remember the author of that book. Um, I thought that the author was Archangel can't cues, but I'm I'm really not certain on that. And let me just say this, Garcia. if it is the book that I remember, uh, I do remember it being a good book and something. I so sometimes it's hard to tell, and sometimes uh, different books have the same title. But when what I remember about a book that I seem to have in my memory banks, Disciplines of a Godly Man, I, I remember it being a good book. So I'd have to know a little bit more about it, the author and stuff like that. But if it's the book I remember, I would say, yes, it was a good book, just a very practical book about discipleship and living. Um, next question from GMS says, The breath came into the Israelites, not all the nations, according to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 12. GMS, you're bringing up something that connects back to our lead question, and it is a great, great question here. You're exactly correct, and I would say that one might believe, based upon what the Old Testament says about the New Covenant, one might believe that the New Covenant was only for Israel, and the passage you're making reference to here in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 12 is one of those passages. That might lead somebody to believe just that. Again, to believe that the new covenant was only for Israel. But this is what God revealed in New Testament times. It's an important aspect of what Paul says was the mystery that was not revealed in prior times, but is now revealed by God's apostles and prophets in the New Testament era. It was revealed that the new covenant would be made available to Gentiles as well as Jews. In other words, you did not have to become a Jew to receive the new covenant and to take part in the new covenant. So yes, you you're as you could say, I see, I get kind of excited about this because I think it's a fascinating subject. You're absolutely correct that going only on the Old Testament one might believe that the New Covenant only applied to Israel. But the New Testament makes it very clear that the pathway to the New Covenant is open to Gentiles, and it's open to them directly. They don't have to become Jews before they can enter in. So yeah, again, I think that's an outstanding point to, to make. Um, Thomas says, can we pray directly to the Holy Spirit? All right, Thomas, it's kind of interesting. I find that a fascinating question. And I'll give you a, uh, answer to it that I don't know if you'll like this answer. I would give you an answer that says yes and no. Yes, we can pray to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's God and we can pray to God. Uh, There's nowhere in the Bible that condemns or prohibits the idea of praying. However, and this is the no part, that's the yes part of the answer. Here's the no part of it. However, the emphasis in Scripture is praying to God the Father through the mediation of God the Son inspired by and prompted by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That is the uh, pattern of prayer presented. But in my perspective, it's not presented as a command or a prohibition to pray either to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit. But, But really just a matter of emphasis. I guess if you want to get very practical with this, I would say it like this. I find nothing wrong, nothing strange, nothing disturbing in a person occasionally praying to the Holy Spirit. But if they prayed only to the Holy Spirit and like refused to pray to God the Father or through God the Son, I would think there would be something strange and something off in their understanding. So I don't think we have like a clear categorical answer, but what we have is number one, it's not wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. But that's not the emphasis of what we see in the New Testament. All right. Um, Well, GMS says the New Covenant is only for the Israelites, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. I'm pretty sure I'm going to disagree with you on that. But let me read here from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Uh, Verse 7, Hebrews chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This is one of the great, this is just quoting the passage in uh, Jeremiah, where it speaks about this great new covenant. And I'll tell you, GMS, I'm just going to say, what you do not see in Hebrews Or in Jeremiah, where he quotes it from, you don't see the word or the concept of only. Was the new covenant made uh, with Israel? And you could even say with mostly Israel. Yes. But again, I just want to emphasize that the whole idea in the New Testament is that God opens up the new covenant to Gentiles directly. They understood by revelation of the Holy Spirit, and in in it's detailed for us in Galatians, in Acts, in Romans, that Gentiles do not need to go through the law of Moses in order to get to Jesus Christ. They can go directly to Jesus Christ, directly receiving the new covenant. So I, I would just have to say, I respectfully disagree with you on that. I don't see anything in these passages that you're referring to, either the Jeremiah thirty one passage, which is a glorious passage speaking of the new covenant, or um, here in Hebrews chapter eight where that's quoted, anything that says that it was to Israel only, exclusive. Um, uh, let me go back to the thing that Gracia says. Gracia says, um, "I want to practice discipline, but I don't want to practice legalism." Ah. Rasha, you're bringing up a good point. We do want to practice discipline in our life and walk with it. We should be. Anything that's good, anything that's important, is worthy of a disciplined pursuit. So that's a good you know, impulse that you have for that. It's also a good impulse that you want to avoid legalism. So let me give you the key to avoiding legalism in this context. The key is simply this. Refuse to look to what you do as being the basis, the foundation of your relationship with God. Why are you in right relationship with God? Why? It is not because you practice spiritual or Christian disciplines in a good way. No. No. It's not because you read your Bible regularly, or you pray regularly, or you fast regularly, or give regularly. All those things are good things and should be part of the Christian life. These are disciplines that we should cultivate. But they are not the basis of how and why we are right. We are right with God, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that which we receive freely by faith. That's really the key. Pursue those disciplines. That's a godly thing to do. Pursue them wholeheartedly. Yet at the end of the day, you just must realize that the basis for your relationship with God is not what you do for him. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. You keep in that spot, pursue the discipline, and you'll avoid the trap. Uh Keep going on here, Bill says uh Romans chapter five, verse ten, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Amen and amen, Bill. That is a great verse to bring up with this idea, simply that we are saved, we are rescued, and there is still forgiveness for us in Jesus um i missed a few questions here. Uh, Coming back, uh, Mo says, thank you for being a great role model, a servant of God. Uh, We love and appreciate you. Amen. In the same spirit. Well, God bless you, Mo. Thank you for your kind words. Um, Romans chapter 9, verse 4, T. Stu's bringing up, who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Okay, well, again, I think that's a very interesting thing to to bring up. Uh, I don't see in there the idea that someone must be of the genetic lineage of Israel in order to receive such things. Um, Yes, the Israelites had special covenant with God. Certainly the Old Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, Uh, But the New Covenant is, again, described as being, in the New Testament, something for all of you. Uh, And again, the adoption that God offers to us in Jesus Christ, as is mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, is not exclusively for Jewish people. There is a danger of taking away... This great message of the New Testament, this great message of Galatians, that uh, we come to God directly through Jesus Christ. We, I'm speaking as being a Gentile, someone who is not of Jewish lineage, we come to God directly through Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through the law of Moses. And I would just say, yes, the covenants were for the Israelites, but specifically with The New Covenant, not exclusively for the Israelites. Um, Blake says, I'm glad you're streaming. Found your commentaries on the Blue Letter Bible by accident. Well, that's great, Blake. And it gives me the opportunity just to recommend that fantastic resource, the Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible is an amazing Bible resource. It is a top-notch Bible research study tool that's available to you absolutely free on the internet. Their web address, I always find it by typing in blb.org, blb.org, blue letter B. Um Mo gives a thing. Amen. God is telling Israelites and Gentiles alike, enter this new final covenant. Jesus is our day. Thank you. Blake says, with our lockdown and the perception of leave me alone is safe, How do we go about being a Christian by keeping to ourselves? It seems incredibly odd times to be a Christian. Well, it is a challenge. Um, I don't know if these are unique challenges. I I think that the church has faced such challenges before. And we, we will definitely come through this. My great prayer is that we would come through this stronger. We would come through this with a greater vitality in our life. In our ministry, in our walk with God. That's my great prayer. So we're not just looking to survive this time, but to thrive. And we need to just continually look for any way that we can connect with people and reach out. I do think it's fascinating that this uh, sense of isolation and self protection, uh, maybe in some cases for people it's merited, in other cases perhaps it's not. But uh, is going to make people hungry for the love and care that they can get from other people. So that's what we want to see, and we want to reach out to people. Um, Jennifer says, "Dear Pastor, if one has trust issues, can you point to the best sections or verses that help to strengthen trust in the Lord?" Um, Jennifer, I, I find enormous help in just reading through the Psalms. The Psalms have a way of describing what seems to me to be every human experience and emotion. So I would highly recommend to you, make it a point to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. There you will see believers, David and other authors of the Psalms. Grappling with the real issues of faith, so I think that's a great place for you to go. And a thing, uh, look to the songs in those. Um, but then also, it's helpful for you just to maybe search the internet, Bible promises, and, and look at the wonderful promises of God, and make them your meditation. Make them the things that you focus your mind and your heart upon and uh, make them things that you memorize. It's helpful to memorize these wonderful promises. So I would say that, two Ps for you, the Psalms and the promises. That's a great place to start. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, GMS says, how could the Romans be the people who destroyed Edom? If the nation of Edom were Romans, Antipater was an Edomian. Okay, GMS. Fascinating question you bring up here. Again, fascinating. I believe, again, I'm I'm happy to do some research on this, but I believe that the Edomites and the Idumeans are two different people. Um, I was surprised at that idea when I ran across it, because for many years, I had assumed that they were the same. But I, I invite you to do research, and I'll do research for myself, too. I believe that the Edomites and the Idumeans, the Idumeans being those of a different people, and those were the people connected with Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was an Idumean. I believe that those are different from the Edomites. You're talking about two different ethnic groups. Uh, But again, I'm happy to do more research on that. And that's my understanding, just to relate that. Um, Thank you, JS, for your words about my um, written commentary. Gray Wolf asks, is Melchizedek a name or a title. Well, Melchizedek is a name and a title. (laughs) That's interesting. It's a name, Melchizedek. You'll find that name uh, used in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. It's referenced again in Psalms. And once again, it's referenced in the uh, letter to the Hebrews several times. But it's also a title because the meaning of the name Melchizedek is king of righteousness prince of righteousness. So he was the uh, king of uh, peace, being the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, the ruler, the prince of righteousness. Uh, and these are some reasons that there is a strong association between Melchizedek and Jesus. That's sort of another subject. I would say the name Melchizedek is one of those things that is both a name and Uh, uh, Jane asks, I thought everyone came from Abraham. Well, spiritually speaking, every believer is sort of connected back to Abraham because we're part of those who are justified by faith. Paul explains that in Romans and somewhat in Galatians as well. Genetically speaking, we don't all come from Abraham. Genetically speaking, you would say that the Jewish people come from Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you also have the Arabic people coming from Abraham, those descendants from uh, Ishmael, the firstborn son of Abraham. So uh, most people in the world do not come from the line of Abraham. Genetically speaking, it's just those. Uh, Jane, maybe just for a moment, you confused people with uh, Abraham, with Adam, or with Noah, because we could say everybody came from Noah as well. Uh, So that's interesting. Okay, uh, Vartan says, when are we righteously judgmental? Hmm. Okay, uh, Vartan, I'm going to play around a little bit with your question specifically. I would say that in the way you phrase it I would say that there's never a time when we're righteously judgmental. We can make righteous judgments. And a righteous judgment is simply just uh judging things, discerning things according to truth, according to fairness, according to what's right. That's righteous judgment. As far as being judgmental To me, that connotates being harsh, being, um, and again, harsh, not in a proper way, but harsh in an ungodly way. So I would say avoid the idea of being judgmental, but we can make righteous judgments, judgments that are found and are consistent with the character and the truth of God. That's simply how I would. All right, let me keep going on with some more questions. Gracia is telling me R. Kent Hughes is right. Yes, then it is the book that I thought. It's a great book. I would recommend it. And go back to some further questions. Joe says, so do no rules from the Old Testament apply then? Well, no, Joe, the, the law still reflects the heart of God, the mind of God. There are some things in the law that are of ceremonial or symbolic nature, and those ceremony and symbols are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we are under no longer any obligation to keep them. There are other things that reflect God's judgment of morality and right and wrong, And those things, for the most part, are repeated in the New Testament as commands or instructions for believers. In other words, the Old Testament says, do not murder. And we can't say, oh, great, Uh, I'm under grace, not under law, I can murder. No, that's not the idea at all. Uh, Because for many reasons, but one of them is, the New Testament also tells us, do not murder. The Old Testament tells us, do not steal. But so does the New Testament. So, we have this idea that um, there are moral aspects to the law that are expressions of the moral heart of God. The things that are not required for believers under the new covenant are simply the things that are either ceremonies or symbols that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because they are fulfilled by Jesus. We are no longer required to hold on to that. Hope that helps you there. With that. Um, Well, Gray is also asking there, I've been wondering what about the Sabbath? Okay, the Sabbath is a perfect example of this. The Sabbath is a ceremony or a symbol that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can write in the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, let no man judge you regarding a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath because you are in Christ. So we are not, because the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we are under no longer the obligation to keep the Sabbath law in the same way that Israel was called. Now, there may be wisdom in keeping the Sabbath. Uh, it goes according to our design. But the way that the Old under the old covenant, the Jewish people were required to keep the Sabbath is not um, placed upon believers in the New Testament in the same way. Because again, it's a symbol or ceremony that's fulfilled in Jesus. If somebody wants to make the argument that every ceremony, every symbol in the old covenant must be fulfilled by believers today under the new covenant, Then we better start sacrificing animals. Of course, we need to set up a temple and start temple service. But if we believe that Jesus Christ in his work fulfilled these symbols and ceremonies, especially when the New Testament tells us he fulfilled these, then we receive them as being fulfilled and we realize we are under no longer the obligation. Now, you're under freedom. If you want to keep, the sabbath the way that the old testament keeps the sabbath go for it you have the freedom in jesus christ to do it. if you want to keep kosher dietary laws in the old testament uh, even though you are a believer and there's a, you have complete freedom in jesus christ to do it go for it just don't think that it makes you more right with god so you want to keep the sabbath you have the freedom in christ to do it you want to eat a kosher diet? Do it. No problem with that. And maybe even there'll be blessing for it. And I'm not saying there wouldn't be. But here's the thing. Don't think for a moment that it makes you more right with God. That is not the basis of your being right. All right. We're getting up to an hour here. And to be honest, my uh, voice is getting a little bit tired here. Um, So let me just uh, well, there's so many questions to go. I'll tell you what we we'll are do. We're just going to make note of these questions and come back to them at another time. Uh, but for now, we're just going to end this time together. We are again at the hour point. I do want to thank so much everybody who could join us together for today's question and answer. Um, it's wonderful to see what God is doing. And I have to say, I'm very pleased with the work that God lets me to do and a part of my work. I would say what I do here on my YouTube channel is a small part. Of it. Listen, what I really do is I have Bible on the entire Bible that we're very busy translating into other languages. I got good news. We just received the translation of Philippians in Farsi, and we're building up our Farsi translation library. And we're making progress in Arabic. We're making progress in Hindi. We're making progress in Russia. Hey, here's something. I just got in the mail yesterday, a wonderful thing. Here is a print commentary of mine uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, This is my Romans commentary in Russian. It's in Cyrillic alphabet. Praise the Lord. God bless my Russian brothers and sisters there uh, uh, over in Russia who worked very Pasha, You and your whole team, God bless you for doing this. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So uh, it's great to see what God is doing. Uh, I just want to say, let's get together next Thursday, God willing, and we'll join together for this time. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great blessing. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.